Welcome to Inside the Gridiron with Jack Borowski on Podsource, your home for all things NFL-related. Welcome in to the Inside the Gridiron podcast on Podsource. I'm your host, Jack Borowski. On this episode, we are fortunate to be joined by Sean Kiernan. Sean is an NFL agent and partner at sports agency Select Sports, who have done over $3 billion in contract negotiations. Sean, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to be here, Jack. Now, to start, every agent, Sean, has a unique path to how they became a sports agent. So, Sean, how did you originally first get into the business? So, I was very lucky. I grew up in a similar type business. Uh, my dad worked for radio stations. So when we lived in New York City, he worked for WCBS AM. They carried uh, St. John's basketball and the New York Jets football. When we moved to Baltimore, uh, he worked in uh, he worked for two radio stations that carried the Baltimore Ravens eventually and the Baltimore Orioles. And I was very lucky to get to meet a lot of people on the business side of sports. An old friend of my dad was a guy named Tim English, who was a legendary uh, NFL PA lawyer. He introduced me to a guy named Mark Levin, who still is at the PA today. And Mark has become one of my closest friends and was my first boss in the business. And I did an internship with him. It was 20 years ago this summer, 1999. So once I got connected with Mark, kind of got into the business. And Mark helped me navigate it. Did you always want to become an agent? Was that like your first choice of what you wanted to do uh, after college? Or was there something else that you were originally first interested in becoming? I'll tell you the story because it's a fun one. Um, Like I said, my dad was in kind of similar businesses. I got a chance to go to a lot of games when I was young. So I was eight years old. It was Michael Jordan's second year in the NBA. 1985, 86. And uh, he took me to Madison Square Garden to see Michael. After about three minutes, you know, seeing Michael warm up and do all these cool dunks he used to do early in his career, I looked at my father and I was like, Pops, I want to be the next Michael Jordan. He grabbed me, looked at me, told me, I love you, but you are not going to be the next Michael Jordan. But there is a tall, bald headed dude next to him right now talking. His name is David Falk. That's his agent. And ever since that moment, all I've ever wanted to do is be an agent. So when I wake up every day right now, I wake up living my dream. So you always wanted to become an agent. How did you first come in contact with now your partner, Select Sports? So I was very fortunate over the years. Um, I had worked for, you know, as an intern for a couple different agencies and worked for 14 years for my previous agency, Impact Sports. I had a great experience, but honestly, the business was really shifting under the new CBA and just felt like being with a group that was bigger was going to give me more opportunities going in, you know, going forward in the future. I got connected with Eric Burkhart and Jeff Nally. Um, You know, we spent some time together and we just felt like it was a good fit. And, you know, it's coming up on five years now, my five year anniversary here. And uh, it's funny because next weekend is the rookie premiere, and that's really where we sat down and kind of hammered everything out a few years ago. And they were, they promised me a lot of good things. And the great thing about this company is, you know, 
I feel like they've delivered on everything and I've delivered on everything I promised them. That's great. And now with the agency business, having some connections and being involved does help, but kind of your experiences throughout the years that you've been an agent, how difficult would you say it is for someone to try and break into the business because there are so many agents and so few players in comparison? I mean, it's really hard. When I broke in, there were smaller type companies. And when I say smaller type companies, I mean companies that have, you know, 10 to 30 clients. Those companies are fewer and far between today versus when I broke in 20 years ago. Um, so it's hard to set up your own shingle, build a business. It's harder to get in with smaller agencies because there's just not as many of them. Um, and there's, you know, fewer, bigger agencies, but they're bigger than they were 20 years ago. Based off of that, the recruiting must have changed since you first started. So how do you decide on like how many players to recruit, when to start recruiting? What is your recruiting process like now versus what it was like when you first started uh, and first got into the business? It's honestly not that much different. Um, I've always been successful relating to players that were a little bit older. So in our business, there's two types of players you can recruit. There are rookie players, and then there's veterans who are with agents that you either can anticipate that they'll be unhappy at one point or that they are unhappy and you find out through your current clients. Both those are aspects of our business that occur, and you have to be good at both to be really successful. The business hasn't changed dramatically on the rookie front. I think what's changed is the amount of money that we invest is greater and the amount of return, meaning the contract size for a rookie is significantly smaller and the upside significantly smaller than what it was. So you think back to 2009, 2010, you know, those last couple years with Bradford and guys like that, Bradford got $72 million over whatever, five or six years. The first pick today is going to make about 35. So about half of that. Obviously, you'll have a fifth-year option, but 10 years later, they're making close to half of what you used to make under the old system. And that's true. Really, where you've seen the difference is when you had the 10th pick in the draft, you could make a lot of money um, on that first contract. And that doesn't really happen as much at this point. So really, when you're investing in rookies and spending the money, which we now spend a lot more, you're really investing for the second contract. Why do you think there's been a growing trend of, because I remember Bradford, Jamarcus Russell back then, those guys were making a lot of money, breaking a record each year of the highest paid rookie. So why do you think agents are starting to spend more money, even though um, rookies are making less on their first contract? There's fewer bigger agencies and each of us has more money than what we had back then. Kind of piggybacking off of that, what is your opinion on uh, rookie contracts and how they're somewhat pigeonholed and there isn't too much negotiations that can take place? Uh, it's good and bad. In the past, when you'd have to prepare, you'd honestly spend the whole summer getting ready and negotiate the contracts the last two weeks of July. It was actually for younger people, the best learning experience we had because the contracts were the most interesting of any we would do. They required a lot of intensive research and it gave you the ability to hire 
you know, two interns every summer and really give them a lot of good projects to do. Now that has shifted. You are doing most of the rookie contracts. You know, really I did of the four rookies I worked with this year in the draft. I did three of them last Thursday. And the first round are still remaining. And honestly, if I wanted to do it on Monday, I probably could. And the contract wouldn't be significantly different Monday versus next Monday or, you know, the day before training camp starts. So it's really a different process of what you're achieving. And, you know, it's disappointing because they used to be a lot of fun at the same point. It allows you to negotiate those contracts and then go focus on other aspects of the business over the summer and, you know, work toward different things. You spend a lot more time this time of year, May and June, with current clients. Um, I'll be on the road the next two weeks. And, you know, it allows you to do different things. So it just has shifted the focus of what used to be what we do a lot in May, June, and July and give them an opportunity to go do other things. And this year, you guys had one of the most interesting draft classes, having a first pick in Kyler Murray and then also having Nikhil Harry, two first-round picks in a draft class. We know Murray was, this was a huge thing talked about for a really long time. So what was draft day like for your firm this year? I'd been in Nashville the couple days before that with Nikhil, Kyler, and we had Joan Williams there. I had it set up where if it worked out, it was going to be awesome. Spent the first day with Nikhil and then knew that Joan, since he was from Nashville, was going to be invited up to the stage on the second day and walk the stage and hug the commissioner then. So I got to experience both. And it was really an awesome couple of days for me personally. It was tremendous for us as a company to represent the number one pick in the draft. I was so excited when I saw Eric Burkhart that Tuesday afternoon in Nashville because he had just finalized on the plane ride in Frank Clark's $106 million deal on top of having the number one pick. So really, Eric Burkhart, if he ever has a better week as an agent than that, then I love the guy. And representing Nikhil Harry, was there a growing sense that he would become a Patriot or throughout the draft process, there wasn't a good feeling that that's where he was going to end up. I'm pretty good at kind of taking all the information that I get. And I would say that's one of my strengths is the ability to obtain information. And really I looked at picks from about 20 on down to about 45 and really felt comfortable that we had a good amount of teams there in the first round that would consider him. Um, if everything had stayed the same, obviously there were a lot of movement and a lot of trades from about pick 20 on, and it made it a little bit more unpredictable. We knew which teams liked them. The one goal we had the whole night and we were all on board with this was we want to get Hollywood Brown off the board. And the sooner that happens, the better it's going to be for the other couple wide receivers. And we weren't sure if there were going to be two, three or four wide receivers. And we weren't sure which order he would come off the board, two, three, four, five, or six. Every team's board was a little different. It was very unpredictable. I'd say the two toughest positions to predict in this past draft were corner and wide receiver. And I had the second wide receiver and the sixth corner taken. 
And in talking to different teams, the board was crazy for both guys. Um, they were legitimately anywhere from the first to the sixth corner wide receiver on the board, and that made it very unpredictable for me on draft night. I know as a Patriots fan, we're really happy to have both of them because it's always good to have cornerback depth, and we definitely need a new uh, weapon for Tom Brady. So I think that could be an exciting year for both of them in New England. And kind of talking about, since we're on the topic of the Patriots, you represent Brian Flores. What was the process like for him becoming the head coach of the Miami Dolphins? Jack, it was my first experience working with an NFL head coach. Our company, you know, had two of them this offseason with Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona and Brian down in Miami. And it was a really exciting experience. We prepared a lot last spring and last summer. So really, the majority of the work that we needed to have done was completed before he went to training camp. We dedicated about four or five full days from the time that they finish up minicamp in June until they report to training camp a couple days before the players report. And Brian was very serious about that. He told me, you know, very matter of fact, he had interviewed for Arizona the previous year and was very clear that he learned what he didn't do well and what he can improve upon and have ready to go. He felt like he'd always be prepared. He felt like he was prepared for Arizona. He didn't have an agent for that. And that's why he hired one after that experience. We were very well prepared throughout that time frame. We started spending a little time, a couple hours here and there on a Friday afternoon, just in preparation in November and December, which was part of the plan. But he was very clear that his number one focus was his job as the pseudo defensive coordinator and play caller for the Patriots. And that the number one goal was to win a Super Bowl. In January, right after the season ended, it was really interesting. We felt like he was going to get an interview with the Packers. We felt like he was going to get an interview with the Browns. We weren't sure what was going to happen in Denver. We didn't really know if that would be a fit. Um, but him and Matt Russell had a tremendous relationship, and they ended up interviewing him. And we weren't sure what was going to happen in Miami. And that one, you know, with the way everything shook out, him and Chris Greer have known each other forever. Chris's father, I don't know if you knew this, used to work for the Patriots. So there's a lot of Patriot history with Chris and Brian and other people within the organization. And, you know, Chris reached out later that day and, um, you know, we didn't know what to expect. That was the one that of all the teams that lost their head coaches, you really felt like that one was a really good fit. And he ended up getting a small window. Obviously, they were in the playoffs. The way Coach Bilicek does it is he allows those guys to interview on Friday and Saturday. And we basically had a window of all day Friday and most of the day on Saturday to the playoff game starting. And Brian had to fit in four very intense interviews uh, on those two days. He was thoroughly prepared. That is a challenge. And my goal, really, the couple days leading up to that was just to make sure that he felt as prepared as he could feel going into each one and that we were ready. And from all the feedback I got from each of the four teams, he was phenomenal. He has an ability to just channel a certain energy 
And the first time I met him, I remember it was like right after the Super Bowl, the previous February, and about 30 seconds into the meeting with him, all I said to myself was, don't screw this up. This guy's going to be a head coach for sure in the next year or two. I think definitely when the playoffs rolled around, I mean, what him and Belichick did was pretty special. I mean, shutting down the Rams to three points. I think Miami has a great head coach in place with Brian Flores. It was your first contract for a head coach. So what's the difference between the language in a contract with a head coach versus a player? Um, first, it starts with the salary information. When you negotiate for a player, you get all this salary information from a team, you know, from the NFLPA and from teams. It's very easy to obtain every contract. They become public basically within an hour of them being announced. Somebody either leaks the numbers and they're relatively close or exactly correct. When you're dealing with a coach or an executive, whether it's a head coach or an assistant coach, Ironically, on the college level, you can get most of the numbers because those are public records requests and you're allowed to obtain anybody who works for a state school. So, you know, Alabama is very well known what Nick Saban makes. Any school like that, obviously a Stanford, a USC, it's not public. So people aren't 100 percent sure exactly what they make. Um, it's the same thing for NFL head coaches. The league does not give to teams agents, anybody, people's individual contracts. They give you averages. This is what the high, low, median, and average are. So really obtaining that information and having those relationships with other teams where I could call and say, Team X, you guys hired a new coach last year. Do you mind sharing with me the numbers? And when I finish this, you can call me and I'll share the number that I negotiated. And those relationships are significantly important. Then from a language perspective, again, there's no standard contract. So we have a coaching division that represents about 50 coaches. So we obviously have experience with the language on that side. Um, the head coaches is not significantly different, although you have a little bit more leverage to change a few things. And we did, we were able to do that. Both Chris Greer and Brandon Shore down in Miami were awesome. Yeah, but, I mean, it seems like what they have in place there it's it's going to be really interesting. I know I'm a Patriots fan. I'm a little worried for the first time that potentially this division could become really difficult. Another thing that I want to touch on a little bit is Twitter accounts. This has become something that when you when each agency they sign whoever they're signing in this year's upcoming draft, it seems that they're always see the past few years in particular Twitter accounts players' tweets coming out that I don't know if it has a huge effect on their draft stock, but it's definitely in the media. Have you guys thought of potentially how you would handle a, a situation like that and how to prevent um, Twitter leaks happening that could negatively affect someone's draft stock? Yeah, you, you asked a good question earlier, which is why'd you join Select Sports? And we have an in-house publicist, Jasmine Windham, she is great at her job. We have a program that we use and she kind of coordinates this as soon as we sign a rookie client and we go through their Twitter and look for certain buzzwords, look for certain, you know, things that could cause a problem and we get the player's username and password and delete them. Um, I think everybody learned that lesson 
a year ago with Josh Allen, the quarterback, and how that can affect you positively or negatively and anything through this draft process that you can, you know, take away a negative, you want to do that. And that's our goal. So it's one of the things we promised last year, and we did that for our rookies' accounts. Yeah, I, I can't believe that an important part of the pre-draft process now is deleting certain tweets, but it's the uh, ch- it's the change in the game. Uh, you have to remember, these kids were 15, 16, 17 being highly recruited in high school, and they may put in a rap lyric or something that they don't think is bad when you're 15 years old, and the way that looks today when you're 21, six years later, it's just got a different tone and reflection and we're in a different time so that's why you do it is just you don't want something to negatively affect a player that shouldn't right and especially now that we start to get to the 2020 2021 22 we're going to start to get to where kids are 12 13 14 they're my age a little bit younger you're not expecting this to ever affect you in the future but it does so that's great that you guys have in place uh, at select sports another uh, important part about the pre-draft process is training so how do you decide on where to have your clients train before they um before the combine that's a good question um there's so many trainers that each of us as a company has relationships with and i think there's a lot of really good trainers out there um it's really hard because there are places and people that end up working with some of these players that you're, you're unsure if they're really good at their job. And there's other places that historically you've had a lot of players go there and you know, they do a great job. The training companies recruit the players as much as we do. So a lot of times when we come into a meeting, either another agent or that training facility has already sold a player on a, on a destination. Um, I look at it this way. I don't really care where you want to be. If you think it's the best place and I know it's a good place, I'm good with that. And we've had players train, you know, obviously there's a bunch of different Exos facilities. They are great. Um, But there are a lot of good individual trainers. Most of them are located in Florida, Arizona, or California. Um, And those are all great destinations. Um, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody a month ago before the draft and got an interesting stat from my perspective. 65% of the players that train for the draft that go to the combine train on the West Coast. And I was shocked at how high that was. And with that in mind, I think we see that certain players rise, like DK Metcalf this year after his combine was projected to go top 10 after what he was able to do there a a lot of guys we've seen this in the past on terry poe just name a few where the combine it's this meteoric rise and the combine shoots them to mid first to even the early first round in your experience how much does the combine and pro day affect where your client gets drafted great question i'm going to give you the twofold answer the DK Medcalf one is very interesting because with Nikhil, I knew a lot about the wide receivers. I don't think DK ever ascended as high as people felt in the media that he had. 
Um, when you talk to teams and you went through their boards, I was joking with people a month before the draft. Look, if DK is going in the first round, I haven't talked to the team that's going to pick him. I just didn't feel like there was a team out there that was going to actually pick him. When you're in the draft, there's two types of perceptions. There's, okay, that player should be a first-round pick, and I'd expect him to go in the first round. Or, hey, if that player is there at 24, that player is there at 29, we're going to take him. And there's a totally different conversation with the team when you're talking about where they think a player is going to go and where they end up taking him. Um, and at both corner and wide receiver this year, the players I felt, because I had done a tremendous amount of research on that group in both scenarios, I felt like DK was going to not go as high as people anticipated and Greedy Williams was not going to go as high as people anticipated. They had unbelievable physical traits, unbelievable athletic ability. Like you can't teach what either of them has. When you watch the tape and I don't watch tape, I talk to people that do watch tape. I just didn't get the sense that anybody was truly in love with the combination of the football player and the person. From what I've heard, I don't know either player as a person. From what I've heard, DK Metcalf is an awesome person. Everything I got from teams was phenomenal on him. Um, it was a situation where people weren't sure what you would do with him. When you break down the film, um, A.J. Brown was thrown to a lot more, was a bigger part of their offense at Old Miss. And that concerned teams a lot. They didn't know how to use him because – Old Miss used the other guy, not DK. So that was concerning to them. And it's really hard when you go through that draft process. You felt for the kid because he didn't end up going until the latter part of the second round. And you saw these mock com you know, mock drafts right after the combine that had him going nine to Buffalo or, you know, twelve or thirteen or fourteen, and he ended up going sixty-four. So we had spent a lot of time, me and my partner, Jamal, who works with me on Nikhil, discussing um, DK, discussing A.J. Brown. I did a tremendous amount of research, and I never got the sense that he rose, although publicly that was out there, and a lot of people mocked him to those type of places. But as you saw the mock drafts from early March to late April, he started to slowly move down because there just wasn't that buzz based on the athleticism. But again, like if you're an NFL team, it's very hard to find a guy who's that big and runs that fast. And somebody's eventually going to draft that, you know, it's going to either work out or it's not. He was the ultimate boom bust at wide receiver this year. But if it works out, it's got a tremendous opportunity. If it doesn't, you only invested a late second round pick and only about half of those guys look at it anyway. And Sean, and a lot of research that goes into this, as you just mentioned, but there is a, a growing trend with players deciding to do their contracts on their own without an agent. We've seen Richard Sherman, Russell Kuhn did it, Lamar Jackson, uh, not going with an agent. But why do you think players are starting to do that? And then a follow-up to that, what is the importance of an athlete in hiring an agent? So... There's 1,800 players in the NFL. If every one of those 1,800 players doesn't use an agent, like my business is really not going to change. Um, obviously, you've got a couple guys that are 
well-known players that have been exceptions. Um, I think myself, whether you ask me or any other agent in the business, we all feel like we probably could have gotten that extra few percentage points for those couple of players that really would have helped them. Um, I think you got to separate it. I think it's very hard for a player who is a veteran, whether you're a free agent or looking to do an extension, to negotiate a contract yourself. It puts a team in a tremendously tough situation and it puts the player in a tough situation. And if they want to deal with it, like more power to them, um, it's very hard to do. There are a lot of little details that agents know. There's a lot of experience that goes into this that all of us are still learning on a daily basis and getting better at that. But there's a lot of very good agents out there. Um, I'm very, I recruited Bobby Wagner coming out of college and still know Bobby to this day. He's going to go through a very difficult process with the Seattle Seahawks. He's prepared. He's excited to do it. You know, at the same point, I talk to him and a few people around him all the time because I want to stay close to the situation if they decide that's not the route they want to go and they want to hire an agent. Um, from a rookie perspective, I think it's a little bit different. Um, I think the feedback, it's really, I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's hard to negotiate these contracts. It's not. But again, you don't pay an agent to do 95% of the contract. You pay the agent to do that last 5 to 10% and really maximize the value of that contract. I'm working off the pick for Nikhil Harry that Lamar Jackson had last year with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, there is a fourth-year guarantee in Lamar Jackson's deal that I wish was a little higher right now. And I wish that he had had an agent who would have done a little bit better job because that is the pick that I'm working off of in this draft. So, yes, that is a little detail, but my guarantee might be a little less in New England this year for Nikhil than what it probably should be based on the market because of that contract being done last year. And, you know, it's not just players that don't have agents. There's also players that sign with inexperienced agents. And each one's a little differently. And you see and you feel bad for the player because, you know, players sign big deals and everybody in our business looks at it and goes, wow, like I thought that deal would be a lot better than what it was. And a couple of years later, they're changing agents and hiring a new agent to try to renegotiate the deal. And you're always a day behind when you're trying to do that as a player. So, you know, it's not just having no agents. There's good agents and there's bad agents out there. I have a lot of respect for a lot of people. And there's some people that I look at and I go, like, they just haven't done it yet. They have no guidance. And I'm not sure they can do a good job. You mentioned a little bit how there's, there is the contract aspect of it. But there's also what... Besides the contract negotiations, trying to get maximized at five to ten percent, what else does an agent do for a player that we don't see but is crucial for them and is an important reason why a player should be hiring an agent? When you look at Hollywood, you look at actors, they have an agent, a manager, uh, a publicist, a lawyer. All these people get paid. When you look at it, they end up paying 30% of whatever they make to all these different people. An agent in sports basically plays all of those roles. 
that's our job. Our job is to, on a daily basis, manage the career of each client. And I think our company does a phenomenal job. I think I've become really good at it. The contract piece and what we negotiate, that's how we get compensated. But really, it's a small part of the actual job. A lot of people will joke, it's a lot of hand-holding, it's a lot of this. No, it's, it's constantly building relationships with people. Like These are business relationships. You can never forget that. And you have to continually look forward. What are our goals for this year? How did last year turn out? Where are you going to be training this offseason? What are you going to be doing? How are you set up? Do we have insurance in place? Your job is to ask a lot of the questions and help guide people's career. And if you do a good job of that, when it comes time to do a contract, you're going to be in a great situation. And you've got to spend time. I have a client this off season who, you know, he was debating, hey, look, I do a better job working out when I'm at working out facility X than I do with my team. So you know what? The first couple of weeks, I'd prefer to stay at this workout facility as opposed to going back to the team and doing the nine-week workout program. I'm not going to go to the first couple of weeks. And we talked it through, and I gave my opinion as to why I felt it was better for him to go back and why that made sense in the context of everything he was trying to achieve and his overall goals in his career. And he ended up going back on the first day, and that was, I think, a really good, important step. And you know, when his contract comes up here in the next couple of years, that's going to look very favorable on him. So there are times where you have to take what the player thinks he should do and talk it out with him and get him to understand, hey, this is the way the team views it. This is the way you view it. You've got to ultimately make the decision. I don't make decisions for anyone. But my job is to put in front of them the information and allow them make the most informed decision. That's interesting because I know fans, we see final product, this player got X amount of money, but we don't actually know everything that goes into the process, what has been leading up to it. And that's where you guys are so involved in that. So I know the CBA is coming. There's going to be a new one coming up soon. What would you like to see in the new CBA in regards to NFL agents? I think there's not much that you're going to see relating directly to the agents, but I think ways we can help the players there's a couple things that I think would be great to see the PA negotiate, some of which I think they'll get and some of which I don't. The way the draft is currently structured, I don't think we'd ever be able to cut down the later round picks. But honestly, it's very long to have a fifth, sixth, or seventh round pick locked into a four-year deal. I think those guys should have three-year deals and then should be, you know, be given the opportunity to be restricted in those fourth years. If you look at it historically from a numbers perspective, most of those guys aren't going to make it to that fourth year. But the few who do are deserving of at least opportunities to get new contracts on the open market. That's issue number one from a rookie perspective. I think there's a few issues. The drug program has basically become you know, obsolete in this league, and I don't think they're going to get rid of it completely, but there's ways that we can – change that to make it better for everybody. The drug program itself is more of a punishment program than it is an actual drug program. So I think ways that we can eliminate that would be great. The biggest fight though for 
everyone is going to be what is the share of money that's split between the players and the ownership and how can those players benefit from that right now one of the good things that's in there for the players is they get 55 percent of the tv revenue that revenue is going to drastically increase under the next cba and i'm really optimistic you know i had lunch with mark levin the week of the draft and i'm really optimistic that they're working toward this seriously with the goal of getting it done because the tv is not deal is not done and i think the nfl from their perspective would rather extend the new cba now and really focus in on how do we get the tv deal done and accomplished so that we can grow the overall revenue pie and with people like yahoo twitter amazon people even espn plus those type of people being able to come in and change the game the last time we really saw that was when fox came in and bought the nfl in the mid 90s so it's a really exciting time in the nfl because there's so much money that's about to pour into this league from a different standpoint than we've ever seen before it's normally been you know traditional tv media companies and as you know like the world is changing you can watch games on your phone you can watch games on your ipad and controlling all of that is worth a lot of money do you see this being a situation after the new CBA where we see a jump in the salary cap like we did in basketball where guys are going to start making a lot more than they currently are? Huge jump. Huge. I sat down with a player who, you know, we're going to negotiate an extension for this offseason. And, you know, in every player's mind, they want a five-year deal with the biggest number you can put on it. And I spent an hour educating a player who's very sharp and explaining to him why if I was in his situation, I'd want to do the shortest deal possible and really getting him to understand that. And now I've got to deliver on the short-term deal that I promised versus the long-term deal that he probably originally would have wanted. And, you know, to really have, you know, we talked about it internally with our draft class. Like we had a good group this year. Imagine four or five years, all these TV deals will go into place when everything's said and done by 2023. That's when all these guys are going to hit for agency. That's what's so exciting to us is we just had a really good draft class of guys who four or five years from now are going to be free agents at the time that this new money is going to really kick in. Yeah, I remember basketball these guys who weren't even big players making more money than the top tier paid linebacker. So I think that could be really interesting to see how the contracts change there. And then for the last question, what would you recommend for someone in high school, college, maybe even law school, who's trying to get into the agency business or is thinking about becoming an agent? So I'm going to use you as the example here, Jack. So I recommend two things to every person that I talk to. I have a lot of these conversations. There were a lot of smart, successful people that had conversations with me when I was between the ages of 15 and 23, 24, until I really got a full-time job in this business. I was always told, you know, if you're interested in this business, continue to pursue it. So 
you've done a great job. You and I have known each other forever uh, since you were very young. And we'll tell everybody that story another day of how you spilled coffee on me when you were about seven years old, the day before I ran the New York City Marathon. But you came to the Combine this year. The reason I'm on this podcast is because you asked me to do it when you were at the Combine and you networked. That is a really important part. At the end of the day, this is a people business. I get a lot of resumes from a lot of talented people and I pretty much ignore them. But my summer intern that gets out here next week, Mariana, she was recommended to me by Joan Williams. On the day Joan signed with me, he said, look, I really need a favor. Mariana's awesome. She's helped me, you know, at Vanderbilt. I want, she really wants to be in your business. I want you to help her. And that's how she got the job. She was very qualified. I interviewed her. We talked, we got to know each other. But at the end of the day, like her resume had to stand out because he recommended her. And this is a people business. So anything that you want to do in life, whether it's be in sports, be in the entertainment business, you've got to meet the people, you've got to have conversations, you've got to have a relationship and a network. Mark Levin for me at the NFLPA was that. Um, when I chose law schools, I came down to three different law schools that I knew I could get internships in those cities based on Mark's relationships. And I chose University of Miami for law school and was introduced to the guys at Impact Sports and started as an intern and worked my way up. The second aspect that I tell every young person is, look, where is the business going? Don't limit yourself to, hey, I want to be an agent. Hey, I want to work for a team as a scout or an executive. No, look at it this way. I want to work in sports. What is the future of sports? Anything you can do to get involved in the business of sports, get involved. There is a tremendous amount of money. And with the new TV deals and the way everything's going to be structured, more money is going to be invested than ever. And try to get in on the ground floor. Go work at Amazon. Go work at Twitter. Figure out ways that you can work in the business that combines TV and mobile, because that is the future. If I was 25 years old today, and I could map this out and I wasn't going to be an agent, I'd figure out some way to work in the TV industry, mapping those two, you know, merging and coming in the intersection of mobile and TV in the sports world, because so much money is going to be invested into that aspect of our business. You look at TV ratings, like it's the NFL dominates it and it's live TV. Nobody watches a lot of live TV anymore but everybody watches live sports. So anything you can do to merge those, that's a great way to look at it and look into the future. Well, that was Sean Kiernan from Select Sports. I really appreciate your insight into the agency business and I wishing you and your clients the best of luck in the upcoming season. Thanks, Jack. You just listened to Inside the Gridiron with Jack Borowski on PodSource. If you liked what you heard, be on the lookout for more inside scoop into the NFL. Also, follow the show on Twitter at the gridiron underscore NFL for all things football related. This is Jack Borowski, signing off.